in Honolulu at the time was very depressed from 9-11. Closer to Christmas, less than a month later, our first celebrity client came in. It was Alicia Keys. She was in Honolulu to promote her first hit, Fallen. Ironically, we were playing her CD at the boutique when she walked by our display of a mannequin that was a reproduction of me from the 60s, sitting in a ball chair originally designed by Aero Arneo and reproduced by Room Service in Los Angeles. Was it hearing her music that drew her in or a darling little jacket? by Mark Jacobs that she ended up purchasing. <laughs> that really changed the tone of our business. Our Isabella Fiore rep was visiting Hawaii and stopped by too. She was completely blown away by the lines that we were carrying and suggested we include Juicy Couture. 
It was through Liz's recommendation that we ultimately carried Juicy, our number one product. This was the peak of interest about Paris Hilton and her sister, Nikki. Nikki loved Juicy Couture and began shopping with us whenever she was in her hotel. It was also a time of Harajuku. Young female Japanese tourists were demonstrating their liberation. Our denim lines that revealed a woman's navel and midriff were very appealing to them. Juicy displayed their name on the backside of their low-rising velour tracksuits. But what was most attractive to them was the signature Nikki wrote on our wall. Our business appeared to be growing. Maybe we did make the right move. The changes that took place in our life is an understatement. Once we decided to focus on Oahu, it just didn't flow to keep a boutique open on the big island. The first year was difficult for Jared and me because I still had my atelier in our building on the big island. Essentially, that's where my work was. Jared was bacheloring at our Diamond Head apartment and I was living alone on the Kohala Coast in a condo that was an investment property of ours. It was a shock to my system to live alone because I had never done it before. Juicy Couture was flying out the door. So were seven jeans and Lacoste polo shirts. Amazon contacted Jared because someone from their company ordered from us and liked our service. And they realized that the lines we carried would be good for them. This really expanded our business and gave us much needed visibility. We were growing exponentially and seriously contemplated purchasing a building of our own that could serve us as a warehouse fulfillment center for the internet and an office for Jared, an office for his son who was doing all the tech work, another office for our bookkeeper and a third boutique adjacent to the warehouse. Ultimately, we did purchase our own building in Honolulu. This time, I approached the boutique in a very conceptual way, incorporating the internet within the store. Remember, this is 2002. I designed a wall with three oversized touchscreen monitors. There were samples of every item we carried in the store for customers to see up close and personal. When it came time for them to select something in their size and color, the next step was ordering on one of these screens, which were directly linked to our warehouse. On another wall, we had a secret window for the merchandise to magically appear. Customers were blown away. A highlight of our online business came shortly after Tom Cruise proposed to Katie Holmes in Rome, and they were photographed on the back of a motorcycle. She was carrying an Isabella Fiore handbag she had received as a gift from the company. After that, everyone wanted it. We had a long-term relationship with Isabella Fiore, and when we visited them in L.A., 
we decided to ask for an exclusive for this bag. And they agreed. They agreed to give us a month head start over the department stores, any other stores, and any online retailers. We sold 700 purses, which equaled $100,000, and we shipped them here and all over the world. If you think back to the 60s, if you can think back to the 60s, there were very few people as visible as the woman you're about to meet. Folks like Annette Funicello, Connie Stevens, Shelley Fabre. That's why Donna Lauren from the Big Island is our story of the week. Donna Lauren was one of the biggest stars of the 60s and 70s. She was a recording artist at age nine, a stage performer, commercial, television, and movie star. Donna was recognized around the world before she got out of her teens. And the big break came from the folks at Dr. Pepper. Relax, refresh, the flavor's fine. It's Dr. Pepper time. There was a nationwide search for the Dr. Pepper girl. It was a seven-year contract that was being offered. I was 16 years old. I was flown to Chicago, sat down on a stool, told to turn around with my back facing the camera, and then I was supposed to gracefully move to the camera. I took off a little bit too fast and went all the way around, kind of fell off the stool. I guess that's what they wanted. The word got out about our boutique at the Hilton Hawaiian Village because there was a television installed silently playing my movies. A show called Hawaiian Moving Company was alerted that the co-owner of Adasa had had a career in the 60s. Consequently, they decided to do a feature on me and combined what I was doing now and what I was doing then. It must have been a very popular segment because Everywhere I went in Honolulu, people seemed to know me and told me they saw it. I was beginning to feel that my new voice was that of a designer. Although, in my heart of hearts, I knew that I would always think of myself as a singer. There was one dress that I designed that became very popular after we moved to the Hilton. I reinterpreted a traditional holoku dress, which hula dancers wear. It was the first time a stretch fabric looked like a formal dress. My bathing suit fabric had a 20% lycra, and so I could use it for other garments in kind of an innovative way. Today, you find stretch in practically everything. But to my customers, it was a unique experience. It hugged their body, so they really didn't need any undergarments, which was going back to the days of the old grass skirt. My holoku was full length and even had a fishtail that simulated a train. We attracted the attention of Miss Hawaii, who was a hula dancer, and she began wearing my garments. What made me unique was that my line was exclusive to our boutiques. Donald Pliner consented to let me custom color 
a sandal of his and imprint my own label on it. Adasa was very meaningful to me. First and foremost, it was a family business, and I thought it would last forever. Then came the economic downturn. It didn't take long before we realized the corporate giants were dominating the marketplace. I would like to think that family businesses have a place in America, but that just isn't the trend now. Our lease was coming up for renewal at the Hilton, which we declined. It became too risky to function as a retailer in this climate. We had to let 25 people go, which was very, very painful. Fortunately, we retained ownership of our warehouse building, so it wasn't all for naught. What a whirlwind. What a whirlwind indeed. A really zippy uh, chapter going into so many different experiences for you, Donna, and, and for your team, as well as taking us back to early 2000s with some brands that were uh, some still are, but some brands that were particularly iconic at that time. Um, I'm just taken back to the whole Juicy Couture. What would we call that? That was a, a, a real revolution at the time, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, actually, it's still in my wardrobe and I, I'm so <laughs> fond of I, I really I mean, there were two young women in Los Angeles that started this design work. And they, of course, started in their garage and then found a small factory in Los Angeles. So everything was made in the USA. Mm. And it was made um, in a certain mindset where literally, I remember reading that Karl Lagerfeld received one of their tracksuits and he loved it. Right. Mm. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, nothing like a kind of a below the waist very comfortable um well cut you know leg on mm. a on a pant that mm. you just scoot on and and it's washable yes the um design that that these ladies created was literally a fashion phenomenon and um well i'll tell you mm. one time when i when i was back in california and living in beverly glen canyon yes jared and i would take a drive over uh mulholland to mm. uh coldwater canyon and rather than going down into the san fernando valley we would take a right on something called Franklin Canyon, mm -hmm. which which uh, was formerly owned by the Doheny family. It was a water reservoir mm -hmm. and a beautiful, beautiful canyon. I mean, again, it's like <laughs> living in Beverly Glen, you know, is like living in the country and the city. And then up on Mulholland, by the time you get to Franklin Canyon, you are really in like a forest setting mm -hmm. with trees that are hundreds of years old and a stream um, that probably comes from, you know, an underwater source. At, at any rate, we used to go there quite often to walk. And oh, and there were two lakes. There were two lakes. This there were besides their water. Now the Doheny family didn't have it anymore, mm. but their set their you know their setup for distributing water was still intact. Um, next to the amphitheater that they built 
<laughs> a very small amphitheater, a very intimate situation, but tucked away, kind of a, you know, hidden from the world. Mm. You had to know about it. So anyway, one day there was one lake, there was a smaller lake that I loved to walk around. And there were ducks in the lace, in the lake, I'm sorry, and not the lace, the <laughs> lake. <laughs> and there were koi fish, big, big, you know, mature uh, koi fish of all beautiful colorations and turtles all over the place. So, you know, it was a beautiful, beautiful path around this small lake. So one day, guess who's there? Okay, yes. Oh, Wearing, wearing juicy. <laughs> well, it could be a few, but uh, tell me. Kim Kardashian. Ah, right. And yes. one of her sisters, which, you know, I was paying too much attention to her. That... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, Juicy was one of those. Uh, it, I think it became a cultural uh, phenomenon. And, and then the fact that, you know, they were a little outlandish and put juicy mm. on the derriere. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Completely yeah. iconic. Yeah. And, you know, and it's a strong statement for a female. Well, it's very true. And, and certainly the way it also mixed, I think they went for the uh, celebrity clientele, at least for, I, I think they used to send them out to famous people in the hope that they would wear them. And then you had people like Madonna and Paris Hilton, of course, and Jennifer Lopez and Britney Spears and, and all of those people wearing it. So that was your number one seller in the boutique? It, it was. And it was just one of those phenomenons. And it was also our number one seller online. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I kind of uh, complimented some of the pieces, you know, if, if somebody didn't want an outfit, but they want, you know, they, they had lots of selections. And sometimes they chose one of my things, you know, that I created to coordinate. Um, so it was all it was it was kind of a, a, a boutique of my dreams, you know, where mm. you, you 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 find luxury uh, brands, but you also find something original and I don't know anyone well you tell me that doesn't (laughs) doesn't love having something that nobody else has well that's exactly it isn't it you you love to have something so unique um you know to yourself or at least to try to put your own spin on it so yeah no I think that's that's dead on the money in, in terms of what we all want we all want to feel unique and and, um, you know, fashion is such an important part of that. And then, you know, you sort of marry up all of those brands that you spoke about and the uh, Tom Cruise, Katie Holmes uh, uh, phenomenon as well at the time. And, and then with this internet business, which, as you said, in 2002, that was incredibly innovative. Where did you come up with this idea? Mm. So, well, back on the big island, probably before 2000, well, Jared's son is is a programmer, mm. and um, he was still a young man, and uh, and so we hired him. Yeah, to start organizing, and um, and he, you know, I'm I have to say something about my husband. He, like you, is a Taurus, <laughs> and what I realized is Taurus always love a return on their investment. <laughs> Is that true? 
never thought about it that way. Hmm, go on, go on. Let me let me ponder this a moment. <laughs> okay. And so I think that, you know, Jared had been retired for quite a while. Mm. I mean, now we're just approaching our early getting into our 50s. Yes. And and so when he decided to join me in my endeavor, which I never thought would become a business, he applied his former business, you know, acumen and together with his son's ingenuity and then combining my daughter's ability to know fashion. Yes. It was just one of those magical moments. And so we actually started on the Big Island before we were concentrating on other brands to post my things, yeah. my line, you know, whether it was couture or they're ready to wear. And um, we got some responses, you know, mm-hmm. and that was encouraging. And, um, and so little by little, other things were added. Yeah, for sure. And it, yeah, it just sounds like, and again, in a previous episode where Jared joined us, he spoke about his, his business career um, in a very sort of innovative uh, business that he had, which was a, um, what would we call it? Was it a subscription service for companies where their, their staff could, could shop at this essentially department store? Well, yes. I mean, he, he had a department store membership. Yes, yeah. And so it was basically a private, you know, r- a retail department store mm. that covered from soup to nuts. So, once, <laughs> you know, once you entered, I don't think he had fashion, but he yeah. had everything for the home. And then, of course, electronic equipment, jewelry and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he um, but he, you know, he, I think he talked about starting he thought he, this is the way he was thinking as a child. Mm. And so, and he was very close to his son. Yeah. And so, you know, even though his son was more of a techie, you know, his sense of business was probably very deep because of his association with his dad. Absolutely. You grow up around that and you, and you see it. And uh, I remember your website from the early 2000s. It was, it was fantastic. The, the, um, the fashion business. Yeah. And um, I I think along those lines, you kind of talk about that idea of um, the Hawaiian moving company episode, which was quite a, a popular episode for that that TV show that kind of spoke about what you were doing now, but also went back to what you were doing before. And certainly I remember in the early 2000s on the Adasa website, there was also a section about your your former career um, as well. How did that feel to, to sort of include some of that? Because at the time, I, I guess you hadn't necessarily there, there was a lot of there was a lot of um, processing to be done about um, mm. that part of your life, but to kind of include it in this in this new area where people where people would become aware or more aware um, that this was who you were. Um, how was that, my dear Doctor Adam? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know I guess timing is everything. Mm. I mm. I I'm very. Um, much in alignment with who I was now, mm-hmm. but then uh, I hadn't really dealt with so many issues from my past. Yes, but it was still rather difficult. 
Yeah, yeah. So was that something that uh, perhaps Jared handled more at the time or? Well, you know, <laughs> he, gosh, it's kind of hard for me to say mm. that. I just think he wanted, he wanted the best for me and yes. he wanted to encourage me, you know, whatever made me happy mm. um, it, without indulging me. But um, the music didn't come until, mm. you know, the, uh, the business closed and it became a kind of an expression of my emotions afterward. Mm. So, um, but the irony of this whole experience for, well, we lived in Honolulu for about seven years mm. and um, we had our contract with, with uh, the Hilton for five years and the um, emotional stature or whatever, you know, experience I was having in Honolulu, I intend to discuss more in depth mm. in the future, but, it was very healthy for me. Mm, mm. And, um, you know, I think it, it just, it's all about, as you were talking about in a few episodes before mm. value, mm, mm. there was a sense of value, you know, um, because there was a focus of what we what I was doing and I was being, you know, there was some receptivity. So, there became, you know, this rather than just giving, 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 it was a, a give and take, give and take, give and take. Mm -hmm. And it just put me in a position uh, of more balance. And um, and I also think that Honolulu has that energy because, you know, when I was studying fashion, I incorporated um, learning about chakra energy. Yes. Yeah. And um, the island, you know, the islands of Hawaii line up like the chakras. Mm, I remember you saying this, yes. And and Honolulu on Oahu is the throat chakra. Mm. <laughs> kind of perfect. Yeah, and that represents commerce mm -hmm. and expression. Mm -hmm. And and so it was, and of course, the evenness of the climate. It's just beyond. As you were, you know, talking about, you know, being in Australia now and it's winter but there's a warming trend and then a cooling trend and all over the world, everybody's topsy turvy. We don't know what to expect. There's fires in Hawaii, etc. Yeah. As we talk right now, there is. Yeah. And, and yeah, like I was saying uh, before we came on the, on the air, um, just it's been a last, last couple of days of some pockets of, of warmth and it just transforms you. So an even climate. Um, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The, the temperature, and maybe it's the vibe mm. in Honolulu for me anyway, mm. was, um, it was very harmonious. So I really, I, I look forward to returning actually in, you know, kind of relaxing rather than incorporating living there and working. Mm. You know? so. I was going to ask, was it a, um, like you said, it was a very conducive lifestyle, but it, it sounds like it was, it was very busy as well. It was so extreme. I mean, we'd get up in the morning, and maybe I said this before, but uh, since we lived in an apartment right next to the ocean, yeah, we and there was there was a stairway out 
um, by the ocean going down into kind of a uh, like a, a pool mm-hmm. where where it was very swimmable. And, you know, we are, we made a choice every morning. Should we take a shower or should we just jump in the ocean? <laughs> you know, I mean, and uh, of course, that's so healing as well. Absolutely. To have the time to do that and the um, making the time every morning to, to set the day up that way, even though it's going to be a, you know, a busy day or a challenging day to, to be able to start the day with that intention, um, you know, I think sounds really important, um, <laughs> you know, to, to yeah, to, to see, you know, what, what is what is going to go on. I, I think um, I'm just uh, I'm remembering also of this time that talking about the old career alongside the new career and, and what, you, you know, finding a voice as a designer at that time there was the the cd the the very best of cd that came out how did that come about for our audience because i know a lot of people uh obviously bought that cd and uh, which had a collection of your um capital recordings on there how did how did that come about do you remember oh i remember now that there was a a man and jared would know his name Mm -hmm. who contacted us Mm, mm. yes that's the way it was okay we didn't pursue that somebody came to us right. and and wanted you know somebody who was a fan of the 60s and mm-hmm. and so that's how that came about and you know he um printed up however many copies and distributed them until you know that was done <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah very cool you never know who you're going to find no matter where you are in the world and no matter what you're doing totally (laughs) totally and I love that you know there's always these surprises that you know from the past that um, are so rewarding and fulfilling to reconnect with Mm, absolutely because people always managed to find you at some point didn't they even during all yeah. these years yeah and then it's like you know it's like going to a reunion you know you <laughs> you can go to a high school reunion if you live long enough but that's 50 years or whatever <laughs> even a 20-year reunion you mm, know I mean, mm-hmm. if you haven't seen someone for so long yeah yep it's it it absolutely is that's a nice way of putting it i think (laughs) so but uh what i consolidated in this chapter is our um our episode of five years uh at the hilton yes and um and the quick decline Mm. i mean Mm. it was like an earthquake opened up and the economic downturn in 2007 was just devastating and so, you know, we had to move on and, uh, and it was, it was, uh, oh, you know, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking that when you're working with so many people, you know, you have a five-year relationship with, and then suddenly it all changes. I think that's really sobering when we realize that we think back to that time and that, that downturn and the, the financial crisis of that time, but to realize for you, as a as a sort of a case study of how quickly things could turn from some such success and and like you said having to let go of a business having to let go of people that you employed um and and i guess perhaps also to figure out what were you going to do next and and adam you know i'm sure that you and so many listeners can relate to this that when the rug is pulled out from under you and you enter the unknown. I mean, we've talked about this. There's so much uncertainty. 
Mm. And, and, and many years now, it's how it's affected me personally is, you know, shown me what true humility is. And humility has led me to such a clean, clear vision of where to put my energy. Mm. And, you know, and no, it's not perfect. Nothing is. But, oh, you know, I, I just heard about how the darkness is bringing the shadow side out in all of us. And so many of us think, well, life is good or it might not be good for them, but it's mm. good. For um, but what's happening is we all have a shadow side and it may not even be from this lifetime. Mm. It, it may be from our ancestors that we came here to heal. Yes. Yeah. And and I feel like we're all in this incredible soup together and, you know, all over the world dealing with, um, you know, whatever we need to go forward. And oh, so you get sideswiped and, you know, you get shocked. And I believe that where, you know, I've been through the, I've been going through this for now since 2007. Mm. It's a long time. And it's a blink in terms of, you know, healing a mm. lifetime or mm. lifetimes. Mm. But I realized that, you know, that's kind of, you know, my journey and, and, you know, when we talk about courage, that's what it takes to face your dark side, to face the shadows that you have in you, to be that honest. It's brutal. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and, and it's so crazy because I think that it shows you resilience and, and it shows you that sense of balance that you can find to learn about your emotional reactions mm. and and kind of temper them what do you think absolutely that uh, the, yeah that whole idea of of learning how you tick and where do those emotions come from and not uh you know having having that ability to almost step back and watch and observe it and and realize what they are and and not get so caught up in them or or to at least be aware of when that is happening because um you know so so many people um don't have that awareness and and i think things keep coming up for them where it's you know why is there always conflict in my life why is there always um upset you know all of these things and to to actually step back and to see those reactions which have been formed uh as you said whether whether people consider that to be something that's maybe happened across lifetimes or whether in their own lifetime due to the ways that they were raised or the ways that they've um, developed or the life experiences they've had to be aware of those things you know like we've spoken about before to be able to step back and to observe one's thoughts and one's emotions with some of that balanced awareness um you know, I think any any time that we need to commit to this, which, as you said, can be a, it can be years um, to do, but to have that commitment 
does demonstrate that 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 resilience that want to not only be able to to manage what is going on and to bounce back from difficulty but also to grow from it as well you know resilience mm. can also be to grow as well as to sort of Sometimes when we think of resilience, we think of something happening and returning to kind of a state where we were. But if something significant is going on, it's often not just um, returning back to where we were, but hopefully have grown from it and to mm. learn something from it as well. Mm. Indeed, honey. And, you know, I think what has happened to me is that whatever intuition I've ever had, you know, I listen to my inner voice, mm. but you don't always follow it. <laughs> you know yes. <laughs> like in my little song you know love it away i i, I say do you want to go left do you want to go right well <laughs> listen to your voice <laughs> inside listen to your heart but you don't always you know it's like something distracts you some you know your ego gets involved no i can do it mm. you know no mm. no no you know and so what's happened to me recently is that whatever intuition that I've had in my life has heightened. Mm. And, and, you know, I don't know what that means, but kind of what I'm thinking is that in terms of intuition is that you might sense things that are about to happen more. Mm. Mm. And maybe, you know, stop for a moment and just, you know, decide, <laughs> listen to your inner yeah. voice yeah. and decide, well, maybe I shouldn't go there. Yeah, that's exactly it. This Maybe when the, that real voice is, um, the, you know, that voice we can trust and that, that voice that does make good decisions can, can be heard rather than, you know, it's hard, as you said, we're either distracted or even, um, you know, distorted Um by all the all the other things that have entered into into that that internal voice we have or that internal monologue we have and you know as you said some of it can be ego some of it can be our experiences some of it can be um we've you know we've developed a heightened sense of threat or fear and things like that and that gets all in the way of being able to make those intuitive decisions um and to you know engage with our own decisions but also to, i think to engage with other people as well i was <laughs> this is a bit of a tangent but i remember this study <laughs> from the i will go on one if you can indulge me but um sure i think it was a it was a study from the 1970s and i think it was done in i don't, I don't think it was a seminary but i think it was somewhere where people were sort of studying religion so you expect these people to be quite altruistic and they kind of set up an experiment these psychologists where i think they had someone on the side of a building or you know somewhere who who seemed to need help who had, was on the ground or something like that and because they had put into the heads of the, the participants that you needed to be somewhere at a certain time, they didn't even notice that person. It wasn't, oh. that they, they didn't, you know, the whole idea was how do people empathize? It's like they couldn't even empathize because they didn't even notice them to begin with. The experiment was set up to see how does someone empathize and help someone. And, and you know, the, the person was so singularly caught up in what they had to do, they didn't even notice that there was something going on. So, yeah. you know, so they had their... They had their blinders on. Yes, yeah, and I think so often we we do that. We're so, um, and and not you know, I mean that's more practical about noticing something. But I think it does talk to that idea that so often in life we're so having to get somewhere, having to do something that we don't just stop 
um, or we're not we're not present in our surroundings. You know, we're very mm-hmm. caught up in the past, or we're very caught up in the future, um, mm-hmm. and we're not here right now. And I've struggled with this quite a lot, so it's a it's mm-hmm. a learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. It it really does require a form of discipline mm-hmm. to catch yourself. And what I'm convinced of is that we all come in with wisdom, mm-hmm. and there's so many distractions that take us away from, you know, knowing who we are and mm-hmm. what, what we need to do that is true to us. Yes. And so that wisdom is in us and call on it, you know, that inner voice, call on it and take a moment and, you know, and with for yourself to be true to yourself. Mm. And, and I trust that, you know, that is going to shift your energy, create more balance. And, and your heart will calm down, your mind will settle, you know, all of the tensions and the stresses, I think are due to literally not being allowed to be who you are Mm. and I think uh, this idea as well that uh, whether that comes from again what we've spoken about you know obligation whether that comes from whatever else but also this idea that sometimes people in the world and people in certain politics perhaps or seeking to control um, will will draw on that will try to put people out of touch with being able to find out who they are and what they actually think and what they want by doing things like appealing to fear, um, you know, a, a, appealing to um, riling people up, all these sorts of things that then when we're in fear or when we're in anger, we can't engage in, in um, or we can be led astray, I think. Um, I think that's Ooh. probably all I need to say about that. But, yeah, we, mm-hmm. we don't get to actually what do I think, what do I feel, and, and not to be drawn up in this, which is hard. You know, it's, it, that's really difficult. And, and, you know, and those, I know I've dealt with my anger issues, and I'm, you know, feeling a, a, a lot more grounded in all the chaos that's going on all mm. over the planet. But those, you know, those who are listening, who feel anger, who feel frustration, who feel anxiety, I think it's so vitally important to just for a moment have an awareness of something that's in nature. You know, Mm -hmm. focus on a rock, (laughs) you know. Focus on, oh, I saw a bird flying by for a minute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's because, you know, I think nature is really trying to speak to us. I think nature has a very high intelligence. Maybe they're smarter than us, mm. you know, because, because they have existed for a lot longer than we have. And so I think we should listen, you know, to what Mother Nature is telling us you know whether it's a storm or we had a major lightning storm lately you know here and no matter what she's she's telling us I mean all she can do is you know snap her fingers you know what I mean (laughs) and 
make something happen. She can make a tidal wave happen. She can make, you know, mm. a, a forest fire happening. Look, look at the boreal forest, you know, 10 million acres mm. was, was burned, you mm. know, from lightning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you're so right, though, this idea of, and it, it goes to that idea of grounding. It, they often talk in psychology about grounding exercises where you're finding yourself anxious or overwhelmed is is to notice something about your environment because it, it'll it get you back to the present moment. And that could be, yeah, something in, if you're inside, that could be something inside. You start looking around the room at what's on the shelves and what does the clock say? And Or if you're outside or you can get outside to, look at a bird going up a tree or what it, whatever it else, a, uh, you know, a, a bug or a butterfly flying or just something that can get you back to that present moment. And it gets, it, it's mm-hmm. almost a form of soothing yourself when you're so mm-hmm. overwhelmed, mm-hmm. you know, and when you're, when you're, when you're feeling soothed, I can't even get that word out, but we're going to try. <laughs> um, it's not an easy one. Um, but when, when we are in that state, that's, that's when we, we're at our calmest, when we can, make ourselves feel warmth during difficult times and when we can bond with other people as well of course recently we lucy and i were walking in the park and some of the the noisy miners and they're called that for a reason these birds but they they are um, they've got a distinctive kind of call shall we say but they're also sometimes nesting in the trees that we walk in so you've got to be very mindful there because they will try to swoop you to get you away from from their uh, from their, their nest, nest, of course, yes. and that's understandable. But um, yeah, you just got to be mindful at that at that time, or you're going to get a noisy miner to the head. I'm so proud of your awareness. Oh my goodness, you and Lucy are you know are thinking not just about yourselves. You're thinking about and caring about their welfare as well when you <laughs> enter their domain. Well, um, I used to have a one noisy miner that. <laughs> used to, I don't see him so often. Well, I haven't seen him in a while, and I think um, I knew him for a few years. But every day he would be sitting on the mirror of my car, um, looking at himself. So oh. we were we were good friends. But yeah, yeah, that's very that's a funny image. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I think we've we've covered we've covered a a lot today. Before we introduce our our next fan guest uh, and a fun fun conversation. Um, I you reminded me of something that you you sent me recently that this kind of harkens back to a, an episode of, of quite a, a while ago, but where you spoke about going to Italy and ending up in um, the south of Italy in a in a wonderful little place, and you recently mm-hmm. came across that place in a talking about fashion today in a yes. sort of fashion. Uh, uh, situation. Tell tell our listeners about that one who might remember that. Um, oh, great! Yeah, oh, I'd love to. Well, you, it's amazing that you've been there as well as myself. Right? Oh, I haven't. No, I haven't been there yet. I've been. Oh. I've been to other parts of Italy. I've not been to. We're talking about Albero Bello here in oh. in, in Puglia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, it was an enchanting experience and uh you know this ancient town of 2000 years old that has maintained the same lifestyle and the same way they they live dolce gabbana mm. decided to do their nine, you know 2023 season opening for spring in arbrobello fantastic and um yeah i i i sorry i i thought you were there and i i thought you'd enjoy it those mm. truly uh, the truly houses which mm. are these these um lime 
kind of washed white facades that are round and they're cone shaped yes. roofs. And that's how that's called a truly. Yes, yes. And, and these people, you know, were so lovely to me and I, I'll never forget them. And then to see Dolce Gabbana, how many <laughs> years later, so many years later, oh my gosh, I was there in 1967 mm. and here we are in 2023. Yes, yeah. And literally the town, okay, my personal opinion is Dolce Gabbana, Yay, another standing ovation for them. Their designs are <laughs> incredible year after year. I love mm. they're my favorite leopard print. Ah, right. <laughs> oh yes. Okay. And they um they came into that town and you could see they probably transformed the town and had so much help, you know, making sure that all of those narrow roads those ancient narrow roads were cleared, all the mm. cobblestone and, you know, all the houses were whitewashed immaculately. And the town center where, where they had their main show, uh, you could see the models walking through the village and showing their, their beautiful clothing and shoes and hats and, you know, their, the whole ensemble i can't even imagine how dolce gabbana came in invested in uplifting and you know and it, the town in terms of spirit but mm. also in terms of everyone getting involved and it's not a big town yeah. so everyone getting involved in this activity you could see locals sitting on stoops all along the way and you know, and welcoming this very high fashion yes. fashion show, <laughs> so it was just enchanting, and I I just absolutely love seeing it. And it's like time stands still, even though Dolce Gabbana came in and kind of gave it a a whole facelift. Mm. You know, th it still has its authenticity. Yes, and it's, it's a one of a kind. And that's the thing. I think it's even a World Heritage Site at this point. Yes, there because right. of because of those those houses that style of house and the, just how charming so anyone that does want to see this there are videos on i guess youtube and and all over the internet of their recent um fashion show in our arbor bello so uh, fantastic oh, yeah. mm. and may i say that i support fashion because i think that art expresses what's happening in that moment mm. Mm. whether it's fashion or any other form of art. Mm. But uh, uh, the fashion designers, even though it's a luxury item because everything is couture and oh, what goes into it, it's, it's an entire cottage industry that's been going on for a very long time. You know, once royalty wasn't the only way mm. to, you know, to have this, this, beautiful craftsmanship for whatever they wore and to me it's just an amazing way to see the expression of how a designer says you know this is what I support in feminism this is what I support in masculinity and mm -hmm. and this is what I support in gender equality and you see it all the time mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and then, you know, you might see 
you know, a, a, a time when the designers years before it happens start designing to tell you what the future is going to be like. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. a sense of that, you know, like they might start focusing on military jackets yes. or combat boots. Mm-hmm. And, and it's true. You can, you can see how these trends, you know, kind of mirror what's to come in the world because these artists have a sense of that. So, you know, I'm just amazed at some of the designers that do that. And uh, of course, I also support, even though personally I I can't, but Mm. those that do, unfortunately, I know, you know, it's contrary to my belief system, but, you know, the reason that, that the couture business is still alive is because of the extreme wealth that only a few have and Mm. and i you know that's a conflicting subject but um you know the fact that there are hundreds if not thousands of people generations of these people that have been working in these environments in these ateliers in france and italy and wherever in england that are creating these incredible garments yes and supporting you know the silk industry and supporting all kinds of industries and you know what i think that the leather industry is changing because people like stella mccartney who's you know vegan and Mm -hmm. only Mm -hmm. uses non-animal products in her designs you know that's becoming a consciousness in the fashion world where the tanneries that use certain chemicals that are extremely toxic are being talked to and having to change their ways. Mm. So, you know, it's just a window to the world to me. Yeah. Whereas maybe sport would be a window to the world to someone else or some other venue, you know, Mm. some other venture Mm. would, you know, would, would be uh, a window to the world. It's my language, you know? Yeah, that's, and, and whatever someone's language is, whether it's it's fashion, whether it's design, as in, you know, design of furniture or, or I'm, I'm thinking of all that atomic age sort of stuff when you're talking yeah. about this looking to the future. And, and I think that leads in quite well to our, our next fan guests who are quite involved in the, uh, in the uh, oh, there's Lucy saying hello, hello. To, our, <laughs> to our next guest. Um, in the tiki um, uh, movement, I guess. So I, I look forward to talking about that. Welcome, everyone, to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast and my very special guests who are in the state of Arizona with me today. I just love our eye contact, our direct eye contact with a tear or two. And you'll hear from Joe David. Joe, welcome. Thank you very much, Donna. (laughs) 
and his lovely, gorgeous wife, Marlo Harris. Hello. <laughs> Who is very shy, but will warm her up. <laughs> and um, they were attending, um, or they just have attended an event that is involved with Tiki Oasis. And if you all remember, Tiki Oasis is where I launched my book, Pop Culture. Is that, no, Pop 60s. I never get that right, do I? <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to republish that book so I can get it right. And uh, Dr. Adam, please correct me if I... <laughs> no, definitely Pop 60s. I'm, uh, I'm here as well, but I'm a little bit jealous that I am all the way over in Adelaide, but I'm glad that you can all get together myself and and lucy the caboodle were standing by (laughs) the caboodle (laughs) and dr adam our hearts are always connected no matter where on the planet we are (laughs) so these guys drove down to where my husband jared and i live and we just had lunch together and got and kind of schmoozed a little bit and got to know each other and i'm telling you I, I think this interview may not ever stop. So, <laughs> so there is another Tiki Oasis going on in Phoenix, Arizona once a year. And then where is where is it also? The, um, Joe? Are we talking about Tiki Caliente in Palm Springs? And we go there every year. We go to Palm Springs a couple of times a year in May and October usually. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, Joe, tell us about or tell our listeners about what exactly is Tico Oasis. As Donna said, some of our listeners would be familiar with it and, and Donna have also performed mm-hmm. at Tiki Oasis. But right. what um what is Tiki Oasis? Well it's it's about the music culture, kind of the re- mid century modern retro culture, artist culture, cocktail culture, <laughs> lounge music, <laughs> surf music. Cars, furniture, Cars, yeah, architecture. It's, it's a it's an all-encompassing cultural movement. Burlesque even sometimes is mixed wow. in there. Excuse me, we have we have a, a, we have some participation from the misses. It's a mid-century modern. Oh, I think it's an homage to that whole beach party, uh, beach blanket bingo, tiki, World War II, South Pacific. Uh, view of the world and it brings in all kinds of Polynesian pop and it brings in um, like lowbrow art and it brings in burlesque and rockabilly and surf music. And the one thing that we were talking about over lunch is that you live in Seattle Mm -hmm. and you have lots of different tentacles in various avenues, magazine, real estate, uh, museum, lots of different uh, activities that you guys are so incredibly involved in. But going to these events is like a surrogate it's, it's like a reunion because we, we see the same, we meet people every year that we all like the same things. And it's a way for us to get together and celebrate that. Like we might have a seminar on uh, what's Tupperware or we might, <laughs> I mean, like, you remember the Tupperware parties that Absolutely. were so popular in the yes. 60s? So yes. they'll do like a little fake, like a, a, not a Tupperware party, but they'll do a seminar on the epistemology of the Tupperware. 
like it's just crazy and like who can talk you know like the the theory and the, and the history of tupperware wait a minute but you would think or like or like those hellman's mayonnaise cookbooks from 1962 oh. have a betty crocker yes they'll do they'll do a whole hour-long seminar on that and you think well how can someone talk for an hour and by the end of the hour we're all wanting more and we're clapping and we're, more we want more slides and more <laughs> tupperware <laughs> i mean it's That's... just crazy people love that whole lounge martin denny music mm. they love beach party movies so they'll do like a seminar on Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello. They'll what, just go what, in depth and talk wait about Wait a second, wait a second, Marley. What about a seminar on Donna Lauren? You have to suggest that one. Oh. <laughs> well, well. Uh, <laughs> we glowing kisses to you. I asked, I asked Donna if she was going to perform again, <laughs> and I'm not quite sure if she wants to do that. But that was in 2016 when she performed at yes. Tiki Oasis, right? When she uh, introduced her book and she did a, who, who was the band, Donna? Who oh, did you gosh, have? Oh, gosh, Deke Dickerson. Deke Dickerson. And, oh, wow. And a group. And yeah, then you had that... go-go dancers. And who were the dancers? Did you just meet them that day? or were these... Actually, my collaborator at the time, Dominic Priori, uh-huh. arranged for some of the well, musicians. And... That was fab. They had like a little, they had a dance routine, it looked like. And mm-hmm. you, somebody must have choreographed that. I loved it. So um, I think the music just moved them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think be, you know, probably if you ever wanted to perform again, you would just find another band. Like, you know, there's already preformed bands who would love to play. Who See this girl. Even... I'm telling you, get her started. We're warming her she's up a, She's a she's sizzling. Friends of mine to perform. <laughs> like they're coming from Seattle to perform at Circa at the Satiki Caliente that we're going to in Palm Springs. And like if like they would love to, like if you came to Seattle, we would put on a show. You have and, a place in the back seat. Yes, I have every. I have. <laughs> we do we do shows and we do events. We do an event in Seattle called. Tiki Trailer Bash at a restored trailer park, sort of like the Shady Dell here at Bisbee. Mm-hmm. But there's one on the uh, Washington coast called the Southwester, and it has like, you know, 30 restored Airstream trailers. And there's a big stage, and we put on shows there every year. And uh, we put on shows all around the Pacific Northwest. That's and we beautiful. have a new website, Northwest Tiki Underground. And it has, because sometimes we have to go underground a little bit with certain mm-hmm. people because they don't understand Tiki and they think it's cultural appropriation mm, and they right. want to cancel us. Mm. So uh, it's it's important that we um, stay nimble. And if we have to do that, we, we're able to do that and remain, remain anonymous. I know in Australia, there's a huge Tiki movement. There's a lot of Tiki bars there and a couple of galleries that specialize in that art. Do you have any in Adelaide, Adam? We, it's interesting you say that. We do have a tiki bar up near the beach, uh, which is just delightful. I I wasn't aware of the tiki movement here, um, perhaps in, in Adelaide, not so much. But I'll, I'll have to look into that in, say, Melbourne or Sydney or maybe even where the weather is is uh, conducive to that in, in Brisbane or, or wider Queensland. Um, so would that be surfing territory? Yes, yes. So, so that probably makes sense, right? Beaches, which would make sense. Um, but I, I had no idea of that. And I'm so pleased. And I mean, I, I'm interested in, in how you both became involved in this. But even when you were talking about that idea of the Tupperware seminars, when I was up in university over ooh, 25 years ago, we'll say, um, I, I did cultural studies as part of my psychology or as, as something different to the psychology. And they were the kinds of lectures that we would do. It would be about modern objects, about 1950s culture, cookbooks, the recipes of that time. So I'm so glad that this has been really taken up and, and um, 
given because that seemed a little bit fringe back then but given these full day festivals that's amazing yeah, there's thousands of people that come and they come from all over the world and they have them all over the u.s they have them on the east coast at lake george mm. it's called luau on the lake they have mm. them in florida there's one uh, called the hookie lao in fort lauderdale uh, there's a number in California, of course, Tiki Oasis. We have one in Portland up by where we live called Tiki Con. And they have some in Australia. There's a huge movement. And there's a bunch of tiki bars right there in Adelaide. There's one um, There's one called Hades Hula House. Yes. You know, that, and there's another one called Thousand Island. The the and Hula House is where I went. Yes. Yeah. And Thousand also, Island is thousand... my husband's favorite salad dressing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How about and, um, that? There's also the Susie Wong bar, it looks like. So there's a number of them. You just need oh, to get out more. I, I, guess we, <laughs> I guess we do have to get out more. I'll put I'll put a hula and Lucy and, and away we'll and, and Bob and away we'll go. And, and <laughs> I know you mentioned also Martin Denny and, and Donna, I don't know if um, we've spoken about Martin Denny before, but did you did you share your connection with Martin Denny with with some um, our guests? Thank you for opening that door. Yes, you know, my first husband's father owned Liberty Records and discovered Martin Denny. How about that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there's all all of these links, you know, that that we'll discover that we have in common. wonderful couple who really uh, you know when when you communicated with me over messenger and I immediately got the vibe that we needed to connect and how wonderful it is truly that this is this is a blossoming of a relationship I feel it and with the whole tiki culture there must be a fascination not only with the heavy metal cars and the designers, um, like the shirt you're wearing, the print you're wearing, what I'm wearing. Love what you're um, wearing. Thank you. And um, century jumpsuit. Thank you. Something I purchased in Waikiki in 1965. Probably at Liberty House. Still, no, not at Liberty House, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> this was at. What did they call that? Walta? No, no, no. The open, the international marketplace. Oh, love that. Thanks yes. for that. Yes. Yeah. They actually saved the tree. Oh, did they? And they built the Saks Fifth Avenue behind the tree. Oh, so actually, yes. So actually that, that area is preserved. It's just not as authentic as it was in, in the way past. So. Right. We'll have to, we've got a picture of that, of, of you there. We'll have to put that up. Or ask That's right. To, with Jimmy, uh, I think Jimmy O'Neill, we were standing in front of, of the uh, international marketplace. Hi, I'm Donna Lauren to tell you about an exciting new contest from Dr. Pepper. Two big first prizes, two dazzling new Excalibur SS Roadsters. 
It's an $8,000 replica of the 1927 Mercedes-Benz SSK. 300 horsepower, automatic transmission, air horns, and other sporty accessories. It's Dr. Pepper's exciting new Treads, Threads, and Treasure contest. Remember, two Excaliburs, plus an authentic raccoon coat, and money! $200 a month for 12 full months! Plus over 1,500 other prizes, including color television sets, electric typewriters, and thousands in cash. Enter now! Pick up a carton or two of Dr. Pepper with official entry blank. Enjoy Dr. Pepper, the distinctively different soft drink. And don't forget, Dr. Pepper's threads, threads, and treasure. And hurry! Let's dig in. And I was, I was going to lead into something that is very ideal. Because after World War II, what you were saying is the culture started to bloom. And, the, you know, I would remember billboards with the latest car. It's like the T-Bird, the Corvette, you know, even the station wagon. Not my favorite, but, you know, <laughs> you, every year you waited for those it, it, gorgeous models to come out. That was part of it. I mean, my next door neighbor, Opal Sullivan had an aqua trim on her 50s track house mm. and her car parked in the driveway was either an Oldsmobile or a Buick, something like that, that was aqua and white. Inside her house, all aqua rugs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it, and and so we, we, lived, we lived that way, but we also could look up at the sky and see the moon rise, clear, beautiful, snowy white, coming from the horizon and going all through the various stratospheres up to, you know, its orb and then its descendants. By 1967, I started seeing in Los Angeles the moon coming up, going through layers of rust color. Mm -hmm. And so may I just pause for a moment and ask you, in this whole, shall we say, celebrating that period of time and you guys are living it now 50 years later you're living it and appreciating it and whatever came from that period of time has sustained mm -hmm. amazing so now what happened to the leaders in that time period and i'm even going to quote our president eisenhower that warned us about the military industrial complex and here we are. Do you think, if you ever did invite me, that we could actually say, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is all about all the wonderful things that we cherish about that period. And guess what? We had clean air. We had clean water. We had healthy crops growing in the fields. And look what's happened. Let's take it all back to what was so good about that time period. What do you think, Joe? Well, I wish we could. I hope we can. It's, it's always a struggle. Part of the tiki aesthetic is about escapism. And the more crappy politics we have and the more the environment goes to hell, the more people want to escape into the old days, more, more nostalgic, comfortable way of life. And... That's a big part of it. Thank you for being so honest, because what you've done is you've just opened up a huge chasm 
to be able to say, okay, we've needed to escape because we feel trapped. Mm. But if we can take what we love Mm -hmm. and incorporate, and my favorite new word, Mm co-create with our creator the way it was, because we want healthy soil. We want healthy children. We want good schools. We want good families. That's really the heart and soul of what you guys are celebrating, mm. in my humble opinion. That's um, your mm. opinion. Well, I agree. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting one, Donna, because certainly, and, and what you were saying, Joe, that idea of that escapism, I, I think if we can take what people loved about that time and what was good and what we should aspire to mm-hmm. that doesn't have to be taking on some of or, or the elements of that time that were not ideal or to put rose-colored glasses on about everything i've been watching a program here on our abc which is the um uh, national broadcaster here it's not not the american abc and there's been a, a, a documentary series about iconic australian objects of that post-war mid-century um things like the uh hills hoist which is the uh, you know your clothesline your, your old big clothesline that used to sit yes back in the middle of your of your backyard because that was an, yes. um, an australian invention or at least um the this version of it and the idea that that was you know considered the the um the object that represented domesticity and and things like that but a lot of the the speakers on on this program are talking about all these these great things were like they're glad that come the 80s people were tearing them out of their backyards because they were so big and took up so much room but because they represented um you know the housewife being stuck in the in the the house so it was this idea of celebrating what was great about that time but also seeing those other things that weren't so great and and having a balanced view I guess is is what um they were suggesting do you do you relate to that that is lovely yeah well the I read a book recently called The Way We Never Were, and it was about, it's, it's about looking at the past through rose-tinted glasses and realizing how gentle and how innocent it was, and yet how sadly we were, you know, racist, and we had lots of, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of opportunity, and um, women were discriminated against on so many levels. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to take the good things from the past and try to save those and bring those forward and get rid of the the bad things, which was, mm. you know, being in the closet if you were gay, and that, mm. that sort of thing. So, you know, how we can bring all those things together, bring all the good, like, because I think order, I don't, I'm not a fascist, but I do think order in our society is important. And I, I appreciate the order, the orderly way things were, you know, having the trains be on time, that sort of thing. <laughs> is, But I mean, that's, but but I if we can keep that and yet give ourselves freedoms, um, yes. it would just make yeah. the present so much better. I'm gonna just like do a, a comparable. So when I, it's a little bit off the subject, but not really. When I discovered alternative healthcare, I discovered acupuncture and Chinese herbs. And since I was three years old, I've had asthma. So singing to me is like a gift from God exercising my lungs because my lungs are always being medicated even to this day to function. So 
when I had my, my third child, I was taking acupuncture and I wanted the acupuncturist to be in the delivery room with me and provide me with anesthesia through the needles, not chemicals, if I needed that. Because I had read about that and he had told me, you know, where needles are put to accomplish that, but not in America. The AMA was not ready. I think that uh, I think acupuncture, now. acupuncture is now incorporated, yeah. but we're going back more than 40 years ago mm-hmm. when I had my, my third child. So to me, it's like we don't have to lose all the knowledge and wisdom that we've acquired mm-hmm. to incorporate the good things from the past. Mm-hmm. That's all. Mm-hmm. And um, but, but I'm so happy that you're here so that we can talk about these things. It's so enlivening, I think, you know? And all the things, the all the facilities that you, you know, the avenues that you're going in, my gosh, you're blowing my mind. Well, I just love the way we know so many people that are passionate about their beliefs these days that are talking to one another, getting together, uh, really connecting. And when you talk to someone that's passionate about anything, it rubs off and it gets infectious. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in love with what they're in love with. And it builds upon itself. And Ooh la la. it's just a wonderful feeling to, um, to share. Yeah. Absolutely. And looking at your jello molds over there. <laughs> for instance, we, so Donna on her wall has some old sort of mid-century copper, copper mm-hmm. jello molds. And in Seattle, we know an artist that collected <laughs> thousands of those jello molds and covered their bar and restaurant and a, a, their apartment, like with their copper? house, with copper jello molds. They're heat conductors, you know. Oh, I did not know that. Well, <laughs> yeah, okay, in Seattle, yeah. it won't matter because it's cold there. <laughs> It's very cold, but it was called the Jello Mold Building. Oh wow! Yeah, and it's documented, and it's it's long gone. But but just like who would know care about Jello molds? But once you start talking to that person, they tell you about where they got this mold or that mold or that mold belonged to my grandmother. Or I got this mold at a, mm. at a you know when I went and traveled to this country and I got this Jello mold or this person brought this to me. Then it becomes fascinating and interesting, and something as simple as a copper Jello mold becomes a, a reason to be a raison d'être. It becomes a reason to get up in the morning. I'm in search of jello molds. Just I as love as simple that. as that. That is and that's, great. And that's the community we found with some of these tiki people and these mid-century mm. uh, conventions we go to. And we're this Exoticon convention in June. And there's people who were brought together through the music of Uma Zumak. Ima Zumak. Is that her yes. name? You know who right. that is? She's like, yes. Yeah, she's saying sort of exotic. Yes. And no one knew where she was. And they thought, maybe... Dr. Adam, please find some of her music and we'll incorporate yeah. that in our Ab- Absolutely. What they yeah. call her? The, um, um, was she the singing bird? I'm probably going to get that wrong. But I went to a show a few yeah. years ago where a modern day artist um, played, uh, uh, well, sang her song. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and there'll be a modern day uh, Ima Sumac um homage artist who's going to be there so it's probably the same person it could because be. how many how many could there be
Pandit. He was an organ player. I remember. Remember Carla Pandit? Absolutely. And it turns out it was an African-American man, but he was afraid he was going to be discriminated against. Right. So he pretended he was Indian, that he was from India. Wow. And so he traveled the world as an Indian wearing a turban, yeah. which of course, only if he was a Sikh would he be wearing a turban, mm. but that's beside the point. Mm. He was actually, it's an African-American guy from the South. And he who, played organ. And he played the organ. And he Never played spoke. in Seattle. And, and he, never spoke. And, and he, he had, had a TV program. So did Nat King Cole and a few others. I think Spike Jones or mm-hmm. um, they had 15 minute allotments in the 50s yes. for that kind of an entertainer. Yeah. They wouldn't yeah. give them any longer. And they would play like in between the, the commercial, like in between yes. the films and stuff. Like the Mohawk showroom or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, we're revisiting. We, we're revisiting all these old um, people who we remember from. Like we went to an event last year, and they had a Heino, and a tribute artist. Heino. Heino was a German. Uh, he was. He had white hair and he had bad eyes, so he always wore dark glasses. And he was well loved by the German people. I only in know the Karl 60s, Lagerfeld. In the, Sorry, in the sixties <laughs> and he was. He was a he was a singer of sort of umpa music. Oh, how funny! And he performed up to um, his eighties. Oh, and he just died recently. But now yeah. there's a guy that goes around impersonating Heino, who I don't think even think he's German. I think he's Canadian. But he wow. goes around to all these mid originally German, maybe maybe originally German. <laughs> he goes around to these mid century events and performs as the artist Heino. Okay, so th- who knows? Maybe there'll be a Donna Lauren tribute artist someday. Hey, that would be pretty cool. I'm not dying anytime soon. Ah, push, push that phony off the stage. Dead? Oh, I don't have to be dead. Okay. There, there were Elvis tribute artists before Elvis passed. <laughs> and and we haven't it. even had dessert yet. This I is. I, I, she did ply me with alcohol. I was going to say there might have been some wine over lunch and. And you're looking at your jello molds. I'm I'm in my um, lounge room looking at all my mid-century vases. I've got lots of glass. Oh, I've cool. got um, I've got a uh, I guess it's olive green. You know the old the old phones, the American phones. Oh yes, sitting here and uh, even a nine. I'm going to say it's a 1964 Jim Beam whiskey bottle. And the reason oh, that that's oh. relevant is because it's that the, the beautiful dark green. It was the a bottle that they based um, or they painted one of those bottles and made it Jeannie's bottle in I Dream of Jeannie. So the iconic okay. bottle was a 1964 Christmas Jim Beam whiskey bottle. And I've got one oh. sitting. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. How in the world did you acquire that, Dr. Adam? That was um, uh, just an online purchase. So there's, there's a few. There's quite a few of them around. Um, 
It was a, it was a, yeah, a end of year Christmas bottle. So it doesn't look like a, a Jim Beam bottle. You'd never know, but it's a, it's a beautiful bottle. And what I loved what you were saying, Marlo, was this idea that these objects have a history. They have a history of the people before you uh, took them on yourself, but they also have the history of your family or, or those experiences. And then I think what I really love about this stuff is it's not, you know, people that love it, you don't tend to just hide it away somewhere. It's the fact that it, it takes on a new life with with the new people that are responsible for its care. And just to add, um, I served these um, Hawaiian goblets that are definitely tiki goblets. I'm sure mm-hmm. I'm serving rainwater with a slice of lemon, but I'm sure that it, originally there were Mai Tais or something with smoke <laughs> hurling out of them or something. <laughs> um, so we, we've incorporated, and these are from 1968. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're still alive and well. And that's the other really good thing about talking in terms of the um, period of time. It was a time when things were still made by hand and the materials that were used were not overly exploited. Mm. And so all of these beautiful glassware and ceramics and and clothing and, and automobiles and even the timber used in the houses, everything was of a, a better quality. And I'm not sure, but I kind of, really believe that there was a higher reverence for all everything that was used to make that you know it's like this came from the earth where did the paint come from who made it and what was in it you know when it what was originally designed and that's um something that our current culture is um very you know they just want to get right on to the next thing mm. but i just discovered in the fashion world Now, I'm a little late in discovering this, but the new designer of Christian Dior is a woman, first woman since 1947. She's Italian. Uh, One of her names is Grazie. (laughs) (laughs) And um, she is promoting through, um, I think it's Bernard Arnault, who owns Christian Dior. And he's the wealthiest man in France. And he is backing her support of women and cottage industries all over the world that are sewing by hand, embroidering, beading, keeping the couture alive because of the tradition and the generations of people that have been involved in this handwork. And, um, you know, when you see a, an object of art, Joe, mm-hmm. you know, how does it make you feel if, if it's just like something digital or if it's something that was made in the period that you you love so much. Well, I love the the tradition of uh, collecting is all a part of what we're talking about and paying reverence to the past and the passions that we have about what we collect. People that go to these exotic events or tiki events are so passionate about every little thing. They collect tiki mugs, beautiful retro wear they love to dress up be colorful and it becomes a part of their personality and Mm. and part of the whole fun Mm. of these events of getting together that make the whole love of it and the passion of it grow Mm. time and time again Mm. Um, some of the collectibles even though there's a, a finite finite group of people that collect certain things 
Whitco carvings, for example, that are carved from wood uh, from the state of Washington uh, are collected by so many people. They get hard to find or, or sandwich aisle jackets that are Fab Alfred Shaheen from Hawaii, yeah. who was a silkscreen designer, and he did silk to screen on women's clothing and on bolts of fabric where you mm. could have clothes made from you in the 60s. And those are loved worldwide now. And he's from Hawaii. You might have even shopped for some of his stuff when you lived there. Did he? Well, I made my own clothes. But um, did he make uh, Aloha shirts? No, not really. Mm. It was gowns. gowns, mostly Long for women. Gowns. Walter Clark and Alfred oh. Shaheen okay. both okay. worked at the same time, in, and they were both based in Honolulu. You know, mm. I wore a holoku on Shindig, uh -huh. um, and it, I, I would have. I still have it, so I'll check my label. Mm -hmm. Okay, tremendous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it it does become more difficult yes. to find these limited mm -hmm. amount of things because mm -hmm. many of the people that created them originally have passed. Mm -hmm. So, and they can't be copied. They're, they were all made by hand. They were made original. And so there was a finite number of them that people can collect. So of mm -hmm. course it drives the collector's prices up, but nothing can make you happier than finding something mm -hmm. at a thrift shop or mm -hmm online or at an auction or mm. these mm. these events always have vendors these mm -hmm. um exotic or tiki events that we go to they have vendors that search this stuff out they mm -hmm. that's their job and they bring it mm -hmm. to these festivals gatherings mm -hmm. and people eat it up mm -hmm. because there's only a few left that you can buy and everybody just loves them so much it's something you are perpetuating mm -hmm. let's say from the past yeah. which is still current mm -hmm. is painting portraits oh yeah yeah i i i love painting I, I i studied it for years and years i have a bachelor of fine arts and a master of fine arts in painting mm -hmm. um, i paint people in oils on canvas in a traditional way a very um realistic figurative work and mm -hmm. uh, it's it, it's something that gets in your blood, like mm. like playing music or anything else. Mm. You can't deny it. And your favorite times, well, my favorite times, are if I have a few hours that I can spend in the studio and lose myself mm -hmm. in the painting. And I I followed that path because I wanted to teach fine art on a college level. Mm -hmm. so, so I got all the proper degrees, and I did teach. Uh, fine art on a college level for 15 years and chaired the art and design department at Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle. I, I still make art. Of course, I'm also very involved in graphic design. And, mm. of course, and that, you have um, an online magazine that can be printed? I, I, I do. I have a, um, a magazine I've been publishing since 2012. I've always published art publications. And this one is called Mirror Magazine, spelt the French way, Miroir. It's an international fine art magazine, contemporary figurative art, photography, and alternative fashion, mm -hmm. which all mix very well together. There's no advertising in the publication. I refuse to uh, bend my passion and use the wrong side of my brain to sell advertising. <laughs> it, hurts, it hurts my brain to uh, even think about it because I have done that before. But mm -hmm. I wanted it to be international and not Seattle-centric like some of the previous publications where I uh, sold advertising to keep the magazine going 
but then it had to be Seattle-centric. By using print-on-demand publishing, it opened up the doors so that I could be international and not have to sell advertising. And uh, more, more than half of the fine artists that we publish are outside of the United States. Tremendous. And I love it. And you can go online and find miroirmagazine.com. You can download all of the PDFs from the last 10 years for free. Mm. And who's on your current cover? Oh, well, I have several people on my current cover. One, one of the things that I love about print on demand is that for each issue over the last 10 years, you can go online, there are hundreds of them. Um, I can have many featured artists and I can give all of the featured artists that want to cover their own cover. So if I have like on the, my most current issue, which is the theme is power. Mm. And I have Cassandra Peterson, who's better known as Elvira. Elvira, yes. On the cover. And I have Marina, Mendusarina Marina, who's the world-class, most famous mermaid, mm, living I mermaid. I love that. And she teaches other mermaids how to mm-hmm. be showgirls in, in the pool. Yes, and how, when, you say, when you say um, power, do mm. you, are you referring to empowerment? Yes, exactly. Mm. Um, people who, who have the power within them to make themselves the art. Mm. Um, expressing mm. themselves. Expressing themselves. Mm. Yes. And sharing so, their yes. So I have some circus performers that I love in there that do aerial circus and they work all over the the world really in different Cirque du Soleil shows in Vegas. And you were sharing, both of you were sharing with me that there's a circus and I had never heard of it. Now I'm very curious. (laughs) Yes, we have Teatro Zanzani in Seattle. They also had um, Teatro Zanzani in San Francisco and one in Chicago. Mm. Uh, Right now, I think they're all looking for new venues. Mm. The most recent one in Seattle was a three-month mm. run a mm. season. That's long. And they couldn't. They had a, a limited time that they could use the venue. So oh, they're looking for a new venue now. Mm. Our youngest yeah. son worked there as a server and part of the show. Mm. What does um, he do? Sam juggles and rides the unicycle. Oh. He does some. He has aerial skills. Oh, oh great. Besides the fact that he's studying to be an airline pilot, this is a, he's, uh-huh. he's, he's expressing his passion. He's an aerial many, artist. Many ways. All the way. he's, a, he's a go-getter. Oh, I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> and how did how did you two um, how did you two meet? Was it through a love of this era, or did that come later, or was that a nice surprise? What's what's your story? Oh, I was a teenager, and Joe was a filmmaker, and he was mm. making a film about. <laughs> Kids Saving the Environment back in the 70s. It was like Earth Day. And it was a documentary about children saving the environment. And I was one of the children <laughs> in the film. Of course you were. Yeah. And so, uh, so Joe made this. Yeah, I was like in high school. Um, I was 14. Um, so he was a filmmaker. And I just remember seeing this filmmaker thinking, God, that guy's cool. Why? I want to marry a guy like that someday. And then like... T- like 15 years later, 20 years later, I did marry him. 
right on so (laughs) almost like you two meeting at your prom yes that's true you know because we didn't come back again it was like sort of full circle we didn't actually get married till I was in my 30s but I met him when I was 14 Mm. and and so for a Mother's Day gift after we'd had several children he got the original film that he made and had it remastered and gave it to me as a DVD so I could watch it anytime That's, That's great. And and that, that topic is is topical right now, the whole idea of climate activism and right. young people and hope and yeah, mm-hmm. very um I think it was event. around the the first Earth Day, like nineteen seventy. Oh cool. Mm. Which is odd again because I'm only twenty nine. That's true. Yes. Well, oh, yes. You know, age we, as, as we say, age is not important here. So. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And um, you both do a lot in this space. So, what does that look like? Is that a lot of organisation? Is it how how does how do these events uh, work? Well, for me, I feel like Seattle's at the end of the world. I mean, it's really at the very. It's, you can't go any further unless you go through Canada up to Alaska. Like, mm-hmm. it's sort of the furthest you can go in the United States on the West Coast without leaving the country. And so I feel like, so for me to survive and be happy, I need to have things happen. And if there's no one else to do it, then I will do it. So I create a lot of events and happenings and thing. And I travel to events in California and here now in Arizona. But for me to stay sane the rest of the year, if I don't make it happen, then there's nothing mm. going on. So I tend to do a lot of event production, small, sometimes just, just shows, and sometimes mm. bigger, like Tiki Weekends, or um, I did this, El- like I really loved Elvis. I had this thing about Elvis for many years. You and just about everyone. Yeah. And, and we had like a, we had the Elvis Mobile and we had a Elvis Espresso machine, you know, we had like a selling <laughs> Elvis Espresso. I bought uh-huh. the domain name, Elvispresso.com. So when we opened our Elvis <laughs> coffee shop, I would have the domain name. I mean, just stupid stuff. But I just thought, well, this is someplace I'd like to go. It does not exist. Oh, I guess I should make it because mm-hmm. it didn't exist. So I made things like that happen. I always loved the idea of a bad art museum and there wasn't one in our town. So I made one. So about what 2008. What do you mean by bad art Well, museum? we started collecting. So some I, we collect good art, but you know, when you see like a really magnificent paint by number or black velvet that is so hideous oh, okay. and you think, well, look at this thing. I mean, I, I have to save it. I must own it. Mm-hmm. I must possess it. And then I started getting and then I got one and another and another and another. Before I knew it, I had this huge collection of bad art. <laughs> and then I thought, well, I need to share this with the world. And I always wanted to go to a bad art museum and there wasn't one. So Joe and I created the official bad art museum of art and the reason it has that name it was it's 2008 and obama was running for president and we both thought "Hmm, maybe we you know we wanted to love our we wanted to love him Mm. and honor him and so Mm. joe came up with the name obama and that's an acronym for the official bad art museum of art so we called it the obama room and it was like anyway it still exists lives. it is still in seattle it's 2023 and it still is it right and it still exists yes so it still lives if you ever come to seattle you will see the obama and it's there you can find it online and um how many elvises do you have there's a couple of black velvet elvis paintings (laughs) but we don't want to hog it you know we give fair you know to bad kitties and you know paintings by grandmothers who mean well and you know a lot of paint by numbers lots of animal you know puppies and kitties and big-eyed children like in the The king king. king. yes yeah yeah so that's (laughs) they make it so popular that 
people would donate things to us. They'd yeah, say, really oh, I found this in Granny's attic, and look look how hideous this is. <laughs> it's probably perfect for your museum. I got to get rid of it. And a picture of Dorian Gray in the attic. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very intriguing. We want good intention, like art that it was somebody had the good intention, but the what, one leg is too long or one boob is up too high. Oh, that's Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling us you have a Picasso. That's impressive. No, but, but it would be like the burgeoning artists that lived down the street, kind of, mm. you know, the grandma mm-hmm. who took up a new hobby, sadly. Um, that, that sort of right. Amazing. Well, you guys are, you're such manifestors of whatever that you create and then share with your community and we appreciate you so much and gosh i mean this is so many levels it means so much to me well and would you you, before we say adjourn and adieu if you would please share your sentiment Mm -hmm. as a dj oh yes well many years ago well because in my teens i grew up in the 60s, and I used to watch all the beach party movies, and I thought they were documentaries. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I truly did. And mm. I thought that I, when I turned 18, I would go in search of that. And mm. anyway, uh, long story short, it didn't work out the way I had planned. However, I still had the love for all that music, all the surf music. And so um, there was a, a public radio station in Seattle, and I got my own radio show. It was called Surfing Those Cosmic Waves with your hostess with the mostest, Cosmic Cindy. That was me, my middle name, Cindy. Right. And I used to play music by Jan and Dean and the Safaris and the Fantastic mm. Baggies. <laughs> and Annette Finicello and Donna Lauren. And I used to play all this music all the time. And I had this big show and I would just make up stories and I would read what I could because that was for the internet. So you mm. would just get things where you could. And, um, you know, I would I would try to impart as much knowledge as I had, but that was before we had a way to spread that, you know, I would have be reading Tiger Beat magazine or something. That's where I would get it. And so, you know, then I grew up and here I am. And somehow I'm in Donna Lauren's house. <laughs> that's that's great. And I, I love what you say about that, that kind of excitement back then of running running those those shows or those articles and, and looking for every little snippet of information that you could find, which was not easy to come by in the early internet before um, 1990 before the internet yeah i mean and here we are now i found my people and we found we found each other found each other that's right in arizona as well (laughs) i know in bisbee arizona so bizarre (laughs) well i want to thank joe thank you and his lovely beautiful wife marlo also known as Cosmic, Cosmic Cindy, Cindy. <laughs> <laughs> to be our guests on Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. And thank you, Dr. Adam, for hooking us up from all the way in Adelaide, Australia. Thank you, Dr. Adam. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> thank Adam. you. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Until next time, everyone, keep riding those waves or whatever we do around these Hanging parts. 10. <laughs> Summer
Yes, sir. 